Welcome to Midnight Menu Plus One. I'm Ray Canada. And I'm Margot Moss. Each week at Midnight Menu Plus One, we meet with a member of New Orleans' fascinating restaurant and food community, and we ask them to bring along a plus one, a mystery guest. We never know who that's going to be. It could be just about anyone. We'll find out pretty soon. But Margot, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about our guest today. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, one of my heroes, one of my absolute heroes in the food uh, culture here in New Orleans, and one of the most interesting people we'll ever meet. We have uh, Liz Williams with us. Very exciting. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Liz, is recent, your most recent gig, the last few years, right, has been with the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, where you're the director. That's right. That's right. And can you tell us a little bit about your new digs? Well, right now we are um, keeping our offices in the SOFAB Culinary Library and Archive, which is this wonderful building that we have opened on O.C. Haley in the 1600 block. And very soon, we are hoping, maybe this summer, to actually be opening the museum just a block away. That's exciting. Now, now why don't we back up and you tell us a little bit about um, just the scope of your museum, what's its purpose, its mission, or your actually your whole organization, really? The whole organization is... Uh, started out to be a southern, a kind of regional organization, but we've really changed our focus a lot. Um, we started out to celebrate and document the food and the cultural foodways of the South. And then as we started to do that, we realized that nobody was doing it for the rest of the country. And we were getting all kinds of phone calls from people from Michigan or Seattle or someplace saying, we have these wonderful artifacts and nobody wants them. And will you take them, even though it's not Southern? And at first we said, oh, no, you know, we're Southern. And there's got to be some place that's going to take it in your part of the woods. But that's not what happened. And so we started taking cheese heads from, you know, <laughs> Wisconsin and all that. So there's sort not of like thing. a cheese head museum somewhere? Not that I know of, no. Wow. And uh, there is a mustard museum, but I don't know. That's pretty narrow. Yeah, it's very yeah. focused. <laughs> so what? So are there no other food museums, like broader food museums and uh, libraries like yours in the country? Not really. I mean, there are food museums that are related to a particular company, like the Hershey's Museum sure. or um, Anheuser-Busch has an interesting beer sort of museum. But, um, and the, the, uh, Chamber of Commerce in Idaho has a potato museum. But other than that, you really aren't going to find something that's as broad as what we do. And really? It's, it's all very, very focused on a particular product, um, or it's a marketing tool. I like mean, that's utterly shocking to me. Mm -hmm. I did, does that surprise you, Margo? Yeah, it does. But I, I, uh, I'm so excited that it's that y'all are here. Yeah. So New Orleans has essentially the most important uh, uh, museum and library of its kind in the country by far. Huh? I mean, I certainly think so. We're what would be your nearest competitor? Like what would be not competitor, but, you know, the nearest um, the closest similar to, to what we are is at um, in Rhode Island at um, Johnson and Wales. Oh, right. OK. And in Johnson and Wales, there is uh, which is a. Culinary right. school and university. Leah Saris went there. She was one of our guests. Yeah, and uh, famous, uh, Emerald Lagasse right, graduated right, right. from there. Um, it is a, a a museum that is really little vignettes that will be a dining room. For example, there'll be a, a pub from you know 1450, and then uh, in another little area there'll be um, a bar from an ocean liner, and there. 
just things that were collected in those places. There was a collector who did all the collecting and then just donated um, all of these cars um, to Johnson and Wales. And cars, so, did you say? You know, um, cars of like oh, railroad cars. Railroad cars, you know. got it. Okay. And um, so they um, they put it together into a, a small museum, and that's what they have. So they are not collecting. They aren't continuing to document They're not or whatever. New things and all that. Yeah. So that is the closest thing to what we are. But now, now there has to be a research. Uh, there has to be a university that has a large cookbook collection or sort hmm. of research thing like that too. There has to be a few of those around, right? There are like the the collection at the NYU is very large, and they have a really great food studies program. So there are universities with food studies programs, <laughs> culinary schools that have great libraries some corporations that are food related that have great libraries but we're the only standalone culinary library wow and it combines all those things really that's right wow that is so that is so interesting i had no clue i mean i knew what uh, what a great organization you had here i didn't realize there weren't other ones like it in the country that's amazing i mean we sort of made it up as we went along were you the founder of that was that around before you that's what i thought okay no. that's amazing she's nodding yes you can't hear that if you're on the radio <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you first um were coming up with this uh, concept. It was a so it was a southern food, and and it evolved. But so how did it evolve? Like your first exhibit to where it is today, and what you provide huh. for the community. And well, when people. we we first started, we were just an idea, obviously. And so we also realized as we talked to people that nobody knew what a food museum would be. And everybody thought of, you know, little statues of asparagus and, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And so we decided that what we had to do to really bring people up the learning curve was to have an exhibit. And then if we had an exhibit in borrowed space, then people would at least have some sort of idea what we were doing. So um, we did this really, um, we we borrowed some space at the old New Orleans Center. This was pre-Katrina. Mm. And um, that was a kind of foundering um, mall. And they had space in there. And they let us have one of the spaces. And we decided that we would do a sort of low-hanging fruit kind of exhibit, which was going to be all about the food, I mean, all about the drink of New Orleans. So we did coffee and chicory and Sazeracs and um, nectar soda and barks and some of the breweries. And so that's basically what we did. And we walked around and asked people, do you have any any artifacts we can borrow? <laughs> and that's kind of how we put it together. Wow. And I mean, we were knocking on the bars, the doors of and the bars. And what year was that? That was in um, 2004. Wow. So you've come a long way right. in a short time. Mm -hmm. I mean, less mm -hmm. than a decade, you've come from that to this expansive vision you have now that's really just growing and you have much more space now. Right, right. And we're going to have a demonstration kitchen and we'll have a restaurant and bar. And the whole idea is to be really excited about something that you see in one of the exhibits and be able to buy it at the restaurant 
cool. And then walk around with it and eat it or drink it so that you have a really complete experience. Now, how many volumes is your research library, roughly, do you know? Right now, we're at about 13,000. 13,000! 13, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot for, yeah. I mean, it's largely cookbooks and things like that, or it's other things, too? It's mostly cookbooks, but we also have books about nutrition, books about starting a restaurant or a catering business, books about farming and agriculture, books about um, all sorts of manufacturing and um, uh, fishing, all that sort of thing. Wow. Now, I, I saw that you, there is a, is it an exhibit? And I thought it was uh, anything to do with children I love. And I think that's really important mm-hmm. to introduce children to history and uh, culture and, um, of course, food. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, so I saw you had something listed. Was it pallet and pot? Oh, well, that's about what is that? that's going to happen. The George Rodriguez Foundation um, every year has an art um, contest for junior high and high school students. So this past year they had one, and it was with a food theme. And so they took the um, they took the the winning. Um, uh, students and they took their art and they put it into a cookbook called Pallets and Pots or Pots and Pallets and um, so we're going to have an exhibit of the art from the students that won at the George Rodriguez Foundation uh, contest at the library so it'll be on exhibit during the month of February. Wonderful. So we're really excited Great. about that. So, so now, do you have staff now too? Yeah, mm-hmm. you must. You can't mm-hmm. be curating all this and running and getting everybody's books and we have reading everyone. Three okay. full-time people, and we have just a, a passel of volunteers. So we have many, many volunteers. This past weekend, for example, we had um, our first storytelling at the library. Mm-hmm. Oh, so and cool. so we had about 20 kids who came to oh, listen to stories. I saw that on stories. Facebook this morning, yeah. And um, that was really fun. Cool. And we ate porridge because we talked about the three bears. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and, you know, kids don't know what porridge is. I'm not sure I know what porridge is. <laughs> I always thought it was like oatmeal, isn't it? It is, yeah. Okay, yeah, there we go. Okay. yeah. But it doesn't have to be oatmeal. It doesn't be oats, but that's what it usually is. It's just oh. some kind of a grain. Like a so hot how many cereal. People, uh-huh. How many people visit the... Uh, the library? The, the or library the or the museum, museum or, or bo- you eat both, I guess? Well, in the when we were at the Riverwalk, which is kind of what I consider our incubator... We had about 35,000 visitors a year. Wow. And in the library... Now, most of them were just stopping in the gift shop, or were they actually coming into no, the no, whole... No, they were okay. coming okay. into okay. the whole place. I don't count the ones who just <laughs> shopped. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then at the library, it's a little bit different. You don't really just kind of go and visit a library and look at the books or whatever. Um, but we've been really fortunate. On Saturday, we had someone who flew in from Chicago to do some research in our library. We've had students from working on PhDs and things from various universities that are interested in, um, in food and markets and things like that who've been doing research at the library so we've had a, we've had quite a few people so 35 that's about 100 a day basically mm-hmm. that's a lot for 
for four staff people to be overseeing. You guys get days off occasionally, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, Every once I mean, in a that's while. really remarkable. And you anticipate a lot more now when you when you fully when you get fully operational in your new space, right? Or, we hope so. We yeah. absolutely do. And it's more space too, isn't it? it yes, or, it'll yeah. be more space, and it'll be a better organized space, and all of that. So I'm I'm a bit curious about your background because that's a huge endeavor to uh, and I um, how where did you start out like in your I mean we we could go to childhood I would like to know what interested <laughs> you to uh, go to for your passion for food and history but. Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about your background and well I really think partly I was born in New Orleans and so that <laughs> you know that really establishes a lot Sicilian but, in New Orleans too right Sicilian, <laughs> so you know I got that other dose of food from the Sicilian side so you're Sicilian in New Orleans you just don't have a choice <laughs> so all right saying that um um, I just always was interested, not only in, in eating, which I am, of course, interested in, but also um, I was interested in the way food was part of everything. Um, we, we really explored the whole world looking for spices. Um, the world was transformed by things like coffee and chocolate and all of that sort of thing. And then you use it in war, you know, you try and starve the other people. And it's really important in commerce. Everybody eats every day. This is something that we all share. And so um, you can even, as an anthropologist or an archeologist, study what people used to eat and see how people migrated by watching what gets transferred from one place to another. I mean, there's just, everything is about food. And so, I just became fascinated with that as a way to see the world. Now, you had a, a couple other careers, though, before, right? You have uh, a law degree, and you've published in law. You practice law in D.C. and in Louisiana. And you were in the JAG, weren't you, in the Army? And That's right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, hold up. That's a lot. So That's because I'm old. <laughs> <I've had time. laughs> no, no, I don't mean that. No, I just think that's so interesting. Now, law, how did you... Um, incorporate law into your passion for food is there a connection well, there's published on law and, and encyclopedia right of law and food right i did do that but i really didn't become a lawyer because of food i became a <laughs> lawyer because i didn't know what else to do you know it's one of those things you get out of school and you have to do something so it's like oh well, let's become a lawyer you know so that's really was not a brilliant decision or anything i just said i don't know what else to do so then I used that to go live in Europe. And so that's when I became a JAG officer. And at that Brilliant, time, if you ask me, well, at that <laughs> time, the army was looking for women. And so I was able to sort of say, OK, I want to go live in Europe. And they said, fine. And so then got to eat all over where, Europe. Where in I Europe mean, did you great. live? I lived in Stuttgart, Germany. Oh, wow. So it was really almost the center of Western Europe. It was really interesting and a great. Can train ride to anywhere, huh? What, uh, as a JAG, what, what, what you did in Germany? Is that, I mean, what, how did, do you well, have to people speak in people German? And, no, and no, no. It was all within the, mil the U.S. military. And because I was the um, only woman JAG officer, Huh. in uh, Europe at that time. I was the sex crime specialist. Wow. <laughs> oh. 
So that's what I did. Mostly defended people um, accused of various crimes. Huh. You're like Demi Moore in uh, <laughs> what was the what was the Jack Nicholson movie where she was a JAG officer? Wasn't Demi Moore one? Who, no, no. Few Good Men, wasn't that she? That was Deborah Winger. Oh, Deborah Winger. Okay, sorry. Another 80s. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but, so that's that's huh. pretty much what I did. Um, went all around. I was able to travel a lot because I would be requested to go from this place to that place. It was really interesting. I got to eat in really great places. So was eating and traveling and food like, um, you know, a kind of a... Um, balance for what your career was because that sounds highly stressful I can't even imagine to it was I mean that was really what I wanted I wanted to be able to live in Europe didn't want to have to cross the pond every time you wanted to go someplace and so it was wonderful um, we could eat in Strasbourg for dinner you know you could go to Zurich for dinner it was just really was wonderful and I enjoyed it, and it was my way of learning the country. You'd mm -hmm. learn about the food, you learned about what was available, how it came to be available, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And then you, uh, did you come back to the United States after that? And, and lived in Washington, D.C., okay. and uh, worked at the Pentagon, and um, more and more was realizing that I didn't want to be in the practice of law. Um, but wasn't sure what else I wanted to do. And, you know, knowing that you wanted to be in food was not something that you could do. I mean, you either were going to be a chef or there was nothing. And, and it wasn't something that was a known profession or something like that. Huh. So when I finally came back to New Orleans, um, I uh, finally was the CEO of the University of New Orleans Foundation. And started the World War II Museum. Well, I, uh, certainly not by myself, but yeah, I yeah. was involved in that and involved in the Ogden Museum. And so mm -hmm. learning about how to open a museum was something that was really um, a great thing to, to learn about. And that's when I realized you can pick a topic of something that you're interested in and you can just create a museum. It's kind mm -hmm. of like... Huh. Um, uh, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland saying, let's put on a show, you know? <laughs> and so that was really when I started to get excited about the idea of a food museum. And New Orleans seemed like a really, really smart place to do it. And then um, we opened these two museums, and there was really not a lot of desire on the part of the university to open yet a third museum. And so I said, I'm at an age at that point, I was about the age that Julia Child was when she started on her career. And ah, I said... She'd also been in the military before. Well, she certainly had been working <laughs> for the government, yes. <laughs> and so I just decided, okay, if she could have this whole career right. at this age, now it's time for me to do that. And so that's what made me decide to do it. Now, who's well, the first inspiring. person you talked into uh, catching your vision, like besides your husband? Who else? Uh, or maybe he came later. Who... Who, uh, who, who said, yes, great idea, how can I help you? Well, we had, a, we had a small board. It was the three people. It was me, it was somebody named Mark Kennings, Mark, who now lives in Atlanta, and Gina Warner. And the three of us formed a board, and it was one of those lean and mean kinds of boards where we made all the decisions. We didn't have, like, this huge board, and we just decided to, to go for it. 
and then we um, incorporated other people by. Were, were you still the UNO? Um, no, no, I had Foundation left. Foundation president, you left. left. Okay, uh -huh. yeah. so you're back to practicing law at that point, and yeah, yeah. Well, let's 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 pause there for just a second, and uh, I see your plus one is here. Why don't you introduce him to us? Tell tell us who he is. And okay, this is Jonathan Tate, and Jonathan Tate is the architect who is designing the. Um, Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Ah, great choice. Glad to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for inviting me, Liz. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about the challenges you're facing in um, developing the space for the uh, museum. Uh, First of all, tell us about the neighborhood, which is great. We need to we need to put a plug in about what's going on O.C. Haley, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Liz should answer most of these questions. She's so well versed in this by now. So it's uh, but um, where to begin with the neighborhood, Liz? Well, I think that the neighborhood has one of those neighborhoods that's been changing for a while, and um, it's kind of exciting because it was at one time. I mean, really far back, um, this the building where we're going to be was the Dryads Market, and it mm -hmm. was part of the whole market system of New Orleans. Right. And then. Um, the neighborhood, even before that, was um, like part of Melpamine Plantation and everything. Wow. So it was was um, a very sort of um, sparsely populated area. And then they started tearing down the old plantations and building it up as a neighborhood. Mm. And then that was a big wasn't that, that was part of Dry's was big Jewish uh, merchant section wasn't in the it? 20th century yeah, yes yeah. yeah and um so in the 20th century it was one of the well Jackson Avenue I think is the first synagogue but on OC Haley and some of those streets there were lots of synagogues so the the merchants started building up the stores and all during segregation of course you had um this this great shopping um, area in the 20th century that really catered to a lot of ethnic minorities, including African Americans, who weren't shopping on Canal Street. Mm. And so the neighborhood started to go down after the Civil Rights era because people were able to shop on Canal Street. Ah. And so these smaller stores that had um, opened up on O.C. Haley weren't able to compete anymore. And that's when it kind of took a nosedive in terms of just a lot of vacancy and all that there. And then now it's just that's been an right. incredible resurgence there that's happening. And That's right. Yeah, and a lot of mixed use. And you have housing there and all kinds of stuff. You all have arts things and business things. Lots of cultural things. Yeah, lots yes. and lots of cultural things. That's really exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, right. Yes, it's one of the first right. things probably, mm -hmm. right? In the yes, it's been yeah. there for for 10 years or more. Wow. Yeah. And a lot more to come. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Well, I was yes. I was in your space last when you had a big gala there where you had lots of, when it was just kind of bare, though. It was just, uh, there was no AC that night. It was pretty warm. We had a bunch was, of fans. You had a bunch hot. of fans going. Yes. <laughs> but it was fun. And I'm just trying to picture, I, I need to get back, but uh, that space, I guess, has been filling in nicely. Yeah, and it's, um, uh, you know, the vision for the museum is really to sort of scrape it back to what it was whenever it was a market, or, or at least what's left of it anyways, and and we'll have air conditioning, so hopefully it won't be <laughs> as as warm as the opening, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's exciting to see it come along, actually. So how so. did you end up being the architect for this? Was it relationships you had? Was there sort of a a bidding process that went on like what, what what was what was that like i was afraid you were going to ask that question let's say fate how about 
about that. So <laughs> the uh, everything fell into place, and in, in my favor, I think actually. So it's a, a long story, not worth getting into, but it was relationships basically. But but I think similar to people that that um, brought me to the project were were also involved in connecting Liz with with the space and and actually uh, at the beginnings of the project as well. So, so you've been involved from pretty much the start? Of well, from the start of the conception of the building. Even before I think you were involved, just when I was getting involved, if not even earlier. Yeah, I think around the same, same time, time, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a long journey. Yeah. yeah. So how close are you to completion with the um, Maybe the this summer. Phase? This yeah. summer. Yeah. 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 So, so soon, we've okay. yeah so soon and and you know it's it's been a work in progress for a while now and um, but we're right at the cusp of of getting everything kicked off uh, aggressively but we're certainly in the process of doing work. If you were to drive by right now, you'd see that they're starting to sort of peel away those layers we talked about that to get back to the original market. So that's you know a visible change that you're seeing at the moment. So, so. there's two sites there, block apart. Mm-hmm. And have you been the architect on both sites or no? Just on the museum actually. Museum the side, yeah, okay. Liz can talk a bit about the library. Yeah, the library really all we did was throw drywall up on on the <laughs> walls and put in shelving okay you know, it was really not something that needed major design what was the use before of that space well it had been vacant and really dilapidated so um, did you purchase it then so we purchased it from the felicity street development oh, uh, organization great. okay and um it was it was stabilized, but that was all. I mean, there was no back to it. You know, there so were how many no, square feet is it? It's only twenty two hundred square feet. You pack thirteen thousand books and uh, I guess office space and the rest of it in, into. Wow, that's pretty that's impressive. Right. Yeah. Yes. So do you have room to grow there much, or we well, can you grow up? What we're can you do trying with it? to uh, purchase in the neighborhood so that we can expand. So. That's the plan. Today we put in uh, fencing. We're working on a, um, a garden in the backyard. Oh, so wow. it's going to be really fun. Somebody dropped off beehives today, two beehives. Oh. So it's going to be great. All right. Yeah. Okay, so now back to the other space that you're involved with, um, Jonathan. So, so you've been involved now for, what, two years? A couple so? of years now. Yeah, yeah a little okay. over two years now. So mm-hmm. And... Um, what, tell us some of the things that went into your vision for the space and how you interacted with the folks that are paying the bills and all that. <laughs> and <laughs> well, this is this is a space that's going to have a working kitchen. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Um, it's going to have two kitchens. It's going to have two kitchen. kitchens in it actually. Yeah. The the major program pieces obviously are the or or. Uh, uh, are the museum itself and, and its collection and an exhibit space for that work. There's a, a restaurant and, you know, a full kitchen, and we can talk for a minute about that. But then there's also the demonstration kitchen, um, which is a, is an auditorium space as well. So it's uh, those are the, let's say, the major pieces uh, of the project. So does right it need now. to be so flexible? I guess you have to design in a certain way that you can do different kinds of displays and uh, different eras that are being represented and so forth, too. So you want a real contemporary look, but you probably also want it to be versatile so you can do other things with it and yeah yeah and the attitude thus far it with the uh, market it, it's an extraordinary structure where what we're trying to do is as i like to describe is sort of strip it imagine a, a piece of furniture that's been painted over over the years and you take it and you have it dipped at banks or wherever you go <laughs> to do that uh here in town and then what you're left with is this sort of exposed piece right and that's that's the the efforts that we're going through right now is to try to peel back those layers and then once that's done what you're going to be left with is actually a, a pretty fantastic space and 
and of itself there's not um not to diminish what we're up to but there's not a whole lot we have to do at that point i think or at least that's the plan so you're making discoveries as you do that too it's sort of an archaeological uh venture here and you're back to archaeology yeah yeah Yeah. i know with the d-day museum uh, that you were involved with i don't know if this was during your year or not but they had that great display of all the of all the uh plates they found underneath when they (laughs) when they did the phase with the with the theater across the street the solomon theater and they have that wonderful display of these intact plates that were family plates that can date and all that no and yeah i bet you found some interesting things in this site too or no well, no. we're, we haven't done any digging inside. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing underground, but yeah. the th- the architectural features. The thing that's really wonderful is that there are these wonderful, str- what are they called? The trusses. Trusses, yeah, yes. They're yeah. trusses yeah. that are made out of iron that are yeah. we're going to be able to expose that you'll be able to yeah. see and they're just really really wonderful yeah the the layers i keep referring to are just the different uses over the years when it was sold to publicly sold or auctioned off in the 50s i forget the exact date but sometime in the 50s uh it was it was broken up and and certain modernizations that happened over the years for instance there dr- there's a drop ceiling in there now so if you were to go oh. in it would it's not that it's low but you've got this um kind of art artificial ceiling in place and what are you know what we're doing is peeling that back actually um, to the original not the major renovation in the 30s but even beyond that to the original where you had a full exposed ceiling and uh, the trusses that are in place it's 20 something is that right Right. i think that's right yeah i mean if you and the reason why i'm struggling a bit with the dates is that if you look at the history of the market itself the old melpamine uh site um which it actually spanned across melpamine what is now uh martin luther king it was one basically open kind of stable building more akin to the way saint rock is now uh and then eventually it was rebuilt as a single structure that spanned over a smaller street and melpamine or would actually bottle neck at the you drove through the market eventually uh it was the the road was expanded and so the museum itself or sorry excuse me the market a soon-to-be museum the the market was separated into two separate buildings there was an arcade down uh either side of the street and then um and then after that it's been sort of you know uh, just layers of both additions and subtractions actually the arcade on both sides of the street no longer exists right and that was another road expansion yeah another road expansion oh so there's no way to put it back because the road's there now that's right ah Yeah. yeah Wow. We kind of track the history of it. In fact, we've got a, a series of drawings where we, we show yeah, the original, the sort of historic footprints and, and as it kind of, you know, where it is today, basically. So, oh, that would yeah. be interesting. Yeah, is that something yeah. that's going to be on display somewhere as well? That's the plan. Yeah. Yes. Cool. yes. Yeah, All kinds stories. of fun stuff. I mean, yeah. even in the layers of paint, mm-hmm. I'm sure yeah. it represents an amount of time. Yeah. It's not just yeah. paint. Yeah. Th- I mean, that's a story, yeah. the way someone... Uh, yeah. So when you take and i'm sure taking away a drop ceiling the first time you get to see the structure it's like Mm -hmm. seeing the spine or the Mm -hmm. uh you know and honoring the original intent so Mm -hmm. that's exciting to me that y'all are not trying to make something that it is not you're you're honoring the past and um yeah yeah celebrating it it. and that's exactly the case i mean no one wants to recreate some you know, f- facsimile of what the history was. It's just, it literally is a process of just kind of opening it up and letting it be what it is today. So, and exposing some of those modifications through the years. So, And we really want to celebrate the fact that it was 
a building that was a market yeah. so that there was food associated with the building so and great. so it's kind yeah. of a nice circle that's great yeah. and you knew that buying it and all yes, that I mean, yeah yes, yeah you yes. know, okay yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that's really so that was probably one of the attractive points in choosing that site when you knew you had to move out of the mall and that's true. Yes, yeah. it, it gives you a good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I just love how it's geographically kind of central to the city in a lot of ways too. You look at a map; it's sort of like in the middle of the. You know, if you think of the stuff around the river being a little uh, richer and denser in terms of um, history and mm-hmm. use and all that, and then if you sort of take that, it's sort of in the middle of that stuff. I mean, just right above uh, St. Charles a little bit, and I mean, it just a perfect spot and it's wonderful. in a neighborhood you can you can be supportive and watch it you know develop and grow and thrive and mm-hmm. come back to life i mean you can be a part of the resurrection of that neighborhood it's so exciting and if you're if you're a tourist you can take the streetcar from the french quarter and just walk three blocks and so it's not hard to find it's it's really off the beaten path, but on the beaten path at the same time. It's mm. just really wonderful. Liz, I have a question. We started talking about this before the show. We said, let's wait till the show because I'm reading. I, I didn't finish it, but I got up through about three quarters of your latest food book. And, and the only reason why I didn't finish it, it was not because it wasn't absolutely delightful as I posted on Amazon, but it's, um, I got distracted. But um, so I know you'll know the answer to this. Um, what are some of the varieties of King Cake Babies? Well, first of all, why, are, why isn't there more variety, I think, of King Cake Babies? Why are they for such and a And what is place? a King Cake Baby? Yeah, what is a King Cake we, Baby? Where does it come from? Why isn't there more variety? What's, what are some of the exceptions to that rule? Like, what are some of the really interesting King Cake Babies around? Okay. And, and what's the bean all about? What's the bean? Yeah. All right, it started out being a bean. And it was usually a fava bean, a dried fava bean inside of a cake. And it was that all over Europe. So whenever there was a Twelfth Night cake or a King cake or something like that, there was a fava bean inside, dried fava bean inside. and so Not just in France, all over the place. All over the place. That's right. And so um, then... um, Fava bean made famous by Hannibal Lecter in the... uh, Also in a... Yeah, okay, go ahead. That's right. The same bean. (laughs) He ate ate his victims with the fava beans. Okay, go ahead. King cake. Ruin the the fava bean. Okay, go ahead. So um, there were... There were beans that were in the king cakes that we ate here in New Orleans until Mackenzie's Bakery decided to distinguish its king cake from others when it bought these little bisque dolls that used to be called a frozen Charlotte. And it what? Was frozen Charlotte. Why frozen that. Charlotte? So Mackenzie's was- Bakery did it themselves. <laughs> So they bought these dolls that were frozen charlottes. They were just one, like a whole one piece bisque um, doll. And they were used in kilns to determine hot spots inside of kilns. And so as we went more and more toward electric kilns that had more even heat, you didn't need to have these little bisque dolls that you would put into the test run of the kiln. And so these things were uh, becoming obsolete and there were a lot left over and so they bought bought them i'm sure they bought them you know 20 or more for a penny and they had a zillion of them and instead of using fava beans they started to put one of these baby dolls inside of the king cake nothing to do with jesus at all and so we started, lie to. you know how you talk about it's a baby doll, it's a baby doll, and then all of a sudden it becomes a baby because we keep dropping the last part of it. So then you started to get a baby in your king cake. 
instead of a bean you were getting a baby and so then once they ran out of these little bisque dolls because they were no longer manufactured everyone wanted to have a baby in their king cake and so they started to put those little plastic things that are little babies in the king cake because we had come to want a baby in our king cakes and so that is where the baby came from. No baby Jesus. There's no baby Jesus about it. I don't know where that came from, (laughs) unless somebody decided it looked like it went into a crash or something. You know what it is? I think they're trying to make it more sacred, the king cake. Because there is something ritualistic about the king cake. But it's a um, uh, Saturnalia-based custom. Yeah, but uh, but I mean, I'm just just being more even um, internal. I mean, you know, king cakes, to me... You may disagree. Not the greatest of New Orleans cuisine, no. generally speaking. Right. Pretty mediocre overall, right? right? Some of them are great, but uh, overall, a lot of them are really bland and awful and dry and, you know, not creative, da 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 da, nasty, gooey, and, you know, and yet, and yet, held with such honor. When I got here right away, I, when I moved here right away, people wanted to tell me about king cakes, and it's something sort of like, you know the ritual of it, right? It's all about the ritual, the actual right? Food. Exactly. There's something about the ritual of it, right? And so you want to add sacred to that, so you throw Jesus in, and it could have been, you know, that's that's what happened, I guess. So well, there was a theory. synagogue. There was a synagogue where they wouldn't actually let people have king cakes because of the Jesus because thing. of the Jesus thing, and I have to dra- draft an affidavit to say that it wasn't the baby Jesus, so that See, they that could law have. Degree came that's in right. Handy that's what it was food. good for. <laughs> if I can ask real quick, do you have any of the bisque babies in the collection? <gasps> you must, yeah. No, we, we do. Yeah, and, and also, you know, the the we have some of that are French that are the little French um, dolls and other favors that go into the king cakes in France, and then we also have the ones that wait, wait. But if it started McKinsey's, how did it end up in France? Well, th- in in France, they started to put little. Um, uh, favors that were in little uh, they would put like asterisks and um, <laughs> and uh, other things that were from comic books and things like that into the um, into the cakes. Is that before or after McKinsey's? No, it was before. Before, so maybe McKinsey's even knew I, that. They probably they knew that. that. Right, okay, okay. right. And so it, the word in France for fava bean is fev. And so they call these little um, bisque uh, dolls, little favors, fev. And so we have some of those. And then we have some of the more modern ones that because they revived the idea of doing it, that there was a woman named Alberta Lewis. And she designed a little um, like... uh, St. Alphonsus uh, band players and uh, uh, people from the Half-Fast Walking Club <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Um, and she made her own little figurines. And Haydell's Bakery um, used to put them into they their stopped? king cakes. Mm. Well, she died. And so now they... They, they can't they, get anyone else? Well, you they, have some of those, they too? Have, yes, we have wow. some of hers. But they um, they still have a bunch See, I would think that'd over. be a selling point because I would go out of my way if my kids, sort of like what's in Cracker Jacks or like in the Happy Meals, I guess yeah. they have yeah. in the yeah. fast food yeah. places. You'd want to go out of your way to get that king cake because of its baby, even if it yeah. wasn't a better king cake. Or, or its so Haydell's yes. is still putting them in of the oh. extra ones that they still have that, oh, that she good. designed. So Oh, great. So you can do that. 
And then if you buy one of the, the almond and um, the puff pastry king cakes from right. some of the French bakeries in town, they'll actually put one of the ones from France oh, um, in there. Yeah, I know so. Croissant Dure does that. Yeah. And Boulangerie mm-hmm. does that and so forth. Yeah. Well, um. I don't know about the favor, but I know they make the... The almond, the, was that the uh, galette de raw or something? De yeah. Yeah. De yeah. yeah. So can you um, tell us um, some myth that is in our New Orleans culture that people have thought is like absolute fact, besides baby Jesus, king cake, baby, um, something that you would like to tell kids growing up here or you know, sort of like Santa Claus. Ye, well, I don't. I don't want you to crush anybody, but ma- yeah, actually, let's hear uh, something uh, that there really is your pet peeve. We didn't really invent the Sazerac. No, <laughs> <laughs> there are two things. One We're is cutting off your mic if you say that. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing has to do with Madame Langlois. You know the story of Madame Langlois. Madame Langlois is supposedly the person who taught all the casket girls. Um, how to cook Creole cuisine. Uh-huh. And the, it's called the Petticoat Rebellion. All of these women went down the street beating uh, pots and pans with wooden spoons saying, oh, we're so depressed and we're so frustrated. We don't know how to cook here in New, or- in New Orleans. All of the food is different and whatever. And they went down and spoke to Bienville and said, you have got to do something about that. And he said, Oh, Madame Langlois will teach all of you how to cook. And she's learned from the Choctaw or something like that. And so it's a wonderful story. It's a real origin story. But there was no Madame Langlois. There's no documentation whatsoever that she ever existed. And... And if you look at the the timing and whatever, you know, by the time the casket girls came, Bienville was long gone. Uh. So none of it works from a historical standpoint, but it's a great story. And Uh. I think the fact that we want to have an explanation for our food is, you know, is what gives rise to having an origin story. And it shows Uh. how important it is for us that we need to have an origin story. And we aren't just going to say oh it just evolved as a social invention which is basically what it did the other one that i think is totally nuts (laughs) is that um africans who were brought here to be slaves loved okra so much that they hid okra okra seeds in their hair (laughs) as they were being kidnapped so that they would be able to eat okra in the new world because there wasn't okra here and right. they were, they were no thinking about that. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can just imagine you're being plucked well, away from I don't know, you wherever know, prisoners you are. Prisoners hide all kinds of things. That's why I have to do the body searches and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And you just say, oh, wait, let me go find some okra seeds <laughs> yes. right now to hide. That's the only thing I'm going to take. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so I think that, that that, to me, just is the way that white people told a story to make slavery seem less horrible huh Huh. and so they got to bring their okra at least right exactly (laughs) could have been too bad they brought their okra is that the idea wow yeah um well thank you oh are we running out of time no Ah. well i know you're you're uh in the folk life commission aren't you too for okay for louisiana so stories are part of your thing as well well i wish we had more time to talk about that and 
Jonathan, I feel like we we hardly heard from you. <laughs> yes, um, we didn't get to. Yeah, uh, we'll have to have you back ne on next time. Yeah. Next time, yeah. Um, well, thank you though. This is thank you for having. This us. has been an absolute yeah, delight. I cannot thank believe you. this was yeah. an hour. That seemed like I thought we were just getting started. Before we uh, have to cut, I would like. Uh, will you please tell everyone about the the location and the hours and. Um, of well, the museum, the, the museum isn't open. We're expecting it to open in the f summer. Um, the library is open from 11 to 5 on weekdays. It's at 1609 O.C. Haley. And you can check our website, southernfood.org, or you can check the SOFAB Institute, which is our parent organization, sofabinstitute.org. And you'll find all sorts of things there. We are all over Facebook, uh, both the library and the museum. We have um, Okra, which is our online uh, magazine. We have okay. Nitty Grits, which is the International Culinary Dictionary with over 85,000 entries in it. Oh, so we whoa. have many, many things that are our projects. No. <laughs> 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 so uh, we have many projects that people can find online, even if we're not open or if they're not here. Well, what an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for having me. And much. Jonathan, do you, ha do you have, uh, Jonathan Tate, do you have any, um, uh, anything to plug besides <laughs> your involvement? I'm sure you're involved no. in other things besides <laughs> the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Well, we stay pretty busy, but no, it, it's uh, just happy to be involved in this particular project. And, um, you know, it's an honor to be here with you all tonight. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Our special guests tonight have been... Liz Williams of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and Jonathan Tate, the architect of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Thank you. Midnight Menu Plus One is produced by Grant Morris and Chris Keogh is our technical director. And this fabulous audio quality that you hear is by PreSonus Audio Electronics. It makes all kinds of wonderful things. Visit PreSonus.com for more information. You can get in touch with us here at Midnight Menu Plus One by going to our website. It's NewOrleans.com. And from there, you can follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, sign up for our mailing list, get all kinds of swag. Uh, and while you're at itsneworleans.com, you can listen to other episodes of Midnight Menu Plus One and our other shows, Happy Hour, Mindset, True to the Game, Vietnola, Out to Lunch, and others. And if you listen to the show on iTunes, uh, please rate us and review us. It helps other people to find us. Midnight Menu Plus One is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. So we meet here again at Ted's Frosthop. I am Ray Kanata. And I'm Margo Moss. Thanks. Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.